Hello and welcome to uh, our Auckland podcast of questions that we did manage to get done on the Tuesday at the Theatre in Auckland. I am joined by Lucy Green, Helen Chesky, Michelle Dickinson and Matt Parker, who was not on stage before. Uh, I think when we did the Q&A, were you? No, I wasn't. No, so it's lovely to have you here. Um, so we don't show yourself up like the last podcast. Uh, what is, this is question number one, uh, not everyone has given uh, their names on these things, what is the probability of a universe forming such that it is hospitable to the development of life? So that's a kind of, I suppose that partly has Drake equation in there, but in an even larger yeah, sense. Well, multiple we have a, is, the, is the starting point for it. We have a sample size of one. I mean... On, base, on current evidence, the probability is one, <laughs> because we've only got one data point. And there's a certain amount of selection bias, <laughs> yeah. right? Because if the laws of physics were different and atoms weren't stable or something, we wouldn't be here having the conversation. Right, which is the weak anthropic principle. Or something. Someone's got yes. a long name the weak for one. that. Yeah. Um, but we, it, it, it has been said that it wouldn't take very much change in the physical constants. You know, if you change things like Planck's constant and the speed of light by just a little bit, atoms wouldn't be able to form molecules. And so I think there's quite a large sort of parameter space. There's a lot of combinations where you couldn't create a molecule. But we don't know that you couldn't create something else. I presume we don't know how many times matter and antimatter has been exactly the same amount and therefore how many universes have never existed. Can you count the universe if it doesn't exist in the first place because it never existed? You may now <laughs> use your Statistics. bomb here. <laughs> yeah, look, but haven't we got... I mean... Physicists more qualified than me can chip in. Haven't we got an unexpected amount of real matter compared to antimatter? Yes. yes. Yeah, so that's the, like, the big problem in, in studies of the universe is where did the antimatter go? I mean, you call it a big problem, but it's hugely convenient for those of us made of real matter. <laughs> True, yes. I mean, for us, if we, if we come across antimatter, then we annihilate. And certainly we make antimatter in particle accelerators here. And you annihilate it, you release energy, or the, the matter turns back into energy. But yeah, the, there's a big problem. Where is where are the antimatter galaxies, planets, stars? We don't know. Is there a, thinking of the, the kind of Goldilocks uh, enigma riddle, whatever you want to say, where people will say, ah, but if things weren't exactly like this, then things would be different. <laughs> is that an annoying? idea because I've always found it a kind of bizarre thing where someone goes oh there must be a certain level of magic required for everything to be as it is that means that life can exist but surely that that's a in itself just goes round and round and gets us nowhere yeah for me it's a sort of philosophical argument to be able to say that and and if you think about the fact that okay there's a possibility that there are multiple universes out there and we are just the one where it happens to be right then it's just a chance thing and it doesn't feel like such a special um setup that requires some divine intervention to explain why we're here so it's about expanding your horizons i think in being able to cope with thinking that way it's also pragmatic i mean some people have just got other things to be doing rather than than worrying about whether this this universe or plenty of others there's a because it, it does, it does, it does move over into philosophy. It's a, that boundary of is, can you generate a testable hypothesis? And if you can't, I would say that's closer to philosophy than it is to science because you can't. If you if you can think of an experiment that you can't do, that's fair enough. If there is no experiment you could do to distinguish between the two cases, I would call that philosophy. Do you remember the um, science paper that came out a few years ago now, where they said that they'd seen a bruise 
on our universe that indicated in the uh, that indicated that outside our own universe there was another universe. Do you remember that? Paper? Is that in the background radiation or something? I think it was. Yeah, and it, I mean, I, I never saw that it got any traction in the science community, but it was just something that sort of stood out to me. That oh my goodness, is 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 this a little glint of light that's opening now to allow? It's us not to... a glint of light. That's someone's punched you. Well, there is a theory, not to drag out the first question too long, there's a theory where our universe is a brain, B-R-A-N-E, floating in higher dimensional space, and when two universes collide, you get this effect, and one possible explanation for inflation after the Big Bang was we collided with another universe floating in, in a higher dimensional space. But again, you think, how on earth would you ever test or do it? I guess just stare at the cosmic microwave background radiation for a long time. Um, Michelle, we're going to move on. Uh, you Now, you might have to help me reading this one. Uh, didn't NASA know about, and then there's a word, which appears to be culp burr or shuck... It says, I can read this upside down, cold before. Does it say cold before? Oh, does oh, it not? Oh, right. Cold before. Oh, shuttle. So, so this is about, okay. I should give you a little bit of background that Michelle uh, in the Auckland show talked about why the Challenger Space Shuttle disaster happened. Yes, so the question is, didn't NASA know about the cold before the shuttle disaster? And the answer is possibly, but systems engineering wasn't set up in a way with NASA for the, the space launch that the person who was measuring the temperature spoke to the people. So he measured the temperature, but then he just wrote that down in a book. And there was no protocol to say, if it's below this temperature, make sure you tell this person to tell them not to launch it. And there were actually engineers who worked on the O-rings who said, do not launch, it's too cold. But... There are lots of engineers who say do not launch for lots of reasons because it's a high-risk thing, and so NASA makes a decision about risk on that. Um, so they did know about the cold, but it was one of many things that they knew about that they took a risk factor for, and they did wait two hours before launch, before they took off because they thought it had warmed up enough. They did know it was very cold. Um, and then they sort of tried to cover it all up. So the answer is yes, they did know, but yes, they chose not to take action on it, but they assessed the risk um, incorrectly, sadly, um, so the answer is yes, they did know. So the thing that I heard about this was that they, when they were assessing the risk, they looked at the temperatures at which you had successful launches. Yes. And they said, oh, you have successful launches when it's warm and when it's cold. Yes. But had they looked at information about the risk to do with cold launches yes. and the details of and the engineering, then they would have seen it was it was like eight degrees cold. colder this launch than any other launch they had ever done. So they were extrapolating the data back, saying, well, it should be fine, but actually they never had any data um, at that temperature, which is two degrees C. Um, this is a follow-up from the, the very first question of this podcast, and this is, would life be possible with different fundamental forces, which I presume is going to be the same answer, we only have one example, but do, I wonder, this may skate towards philosophy, but are we hugely hampered with our understanding, really, of what is required for life because we only have the examples of ourselves and what has evolved on this planet? Yeah, so there's a, there's a famous... Um, well, it's a thing that physicists occasionally think, which is that um, if, if, you gave, if you told a physicist about the existence of a solid or an atom, they would predict solids and they would predict gases, but they wouldn't predict liquids. So the point being that you can know a physical system and you can say, well, here are all the properties of this physical system, and it's not possible to extrapolate what actually comes out. So it may well be that life is something like a liquid, you know, in that analogy, that it's something where you can know all the rules, but if you only see them operate in one way, you, you can't necessarily predict whether or not they could operate in a different way. And the thing that does seem quite likely is that because universes, in our experience anyway, are quite big, 
and there are lots of opportunities for things to happen that just by statistics you know you try a lot of options out and so there may well be ways of assembling atoms and molecules that are not allowed for or no one's thought of testing to see whether they're allowed so we don't know I mean it's one of those frustrating things it's that all the possibilities that could happen that, that we can't see uh, it's, it, you, you'd lose sleep over that if you're really worried about it so it's quite interesting sorry it's quite interesting that all the Auckland questions, or a lot of them anyway, are on very fundamental ideas. You know, this, for instance, how did first life evolve? Did DNA have to evolve, or was it created through a chance combination of molecules? And of course, then we immediately hit the wall of the, even the definition of life is problematic. And we can see one route for it. So with things like the the development of RNA, so it's thought that uh, ribonucleic acid came before DNA. It's a simpler molecule, it's used, uh, it translates. Um, it's a simpler way of encoding information, but it's not as robust. So DNA is a really kind of solid storage, information storage system. RNA can do that job, but it sort of falls apart a bit. So we can, we can go back through the stages that um, have happened, but the one thing that we do have is that there are some elements of the way life functions which are just common to everything, and they are that implies that they are very fundamental. So we say that there was um, this last universal common ancestor, Luca, uh, and, and what that says is that the biochemistry in that initial thing, the really important biochemistry, happened once in one way, and everything has come from that because it's got the same architecture, and the chance of the same architecture having evolved more than once is very small. Um, so you can step back through, and this is what you know uh, people like uh, Nick Lane do, for example. Anyone who's interested in this should go and read his books. Um, but there is that you can, you can look at extreme environments. So at the moment, hydrothermal vents are thought to be the place where life evolved, and that's, that's for one very simple reason. It's because a hydrothermal, deep-sea deep hydrothermal vent allows you to create, it's got hot energetic stuff on one side, which is what's inside the vent, and it's got cold seawater on the other side. And if you can just put a gate across that and control the flow of energy across that gate, then you've got the start of a machine that can do something. You've got something that can use that energy to get something done. So the, so the basic idea is you need a place where there's this gradient, and then you can start to think of ways that chemistry could make use of that energy source. But that's so all our life has one common ancestor. But I guess there, there could be a shadow biosphere. Like if life came about twice on our planet, we could have a whole parallel system. And the moment you're right, we've only got one example. It would be interesting to see if it did happen somewhere else on Earth or another planet or somewhere, how much would be in common? Like how much is vital and how much is just this is the way we happen to do it? See, I wonder though, because so that has come up. I remember doing it to Nick Lane's book, by the way, Life Ascending is a good place to start. But... Uh, the idea, of when some people have asked, why hasn't life formed more than once on Earth? But once, I presume it's formed once, that anything else that forms may well exist for such a short amount of time when there is already one dominant strand. I mean, is that, is that, will that come into the problem? Time scales are really interesting because we assume, or the sort of natural assumption is that whatever life is, it operates on all sorts of time scales. But actually, we, we occupy a tiny fraction of all the possible time and size scales. And it, there's no reason why you couldn't invent a life form that looks to us like a rock, because in our life, it just basically sits there being a rock. I'm not suggesting that the rock's around us are alive. I'm just saying that in principle... Helen could... bought an enormous number of pet rocks from American comic <laughs> magazines in the 1970s. Still one of the strangest <laughs> fads. Um, but the point is you could have something that looks completely inanimate to us, 
but is changing, does have biochemistry just happening very slowly. I mean, we don't see it on this planet, but there's no reason why it couldn't happen. So it could just be that, you know, there is one of the things that may, might make life hard for us to see is the speed at which it happens. It might not have to happen at our kind of speed. Does anyone like to follow up on that? We'll uh, move on to the next question then. We've, we've covered uh, the uh, why is the life on Earth. Now shower curtains. This is from Jude. Why does my shower curtain always billow <laughs> and then stick to me? I always wonder that. I, I thought the jury was still out on this. Well, well there's definitely a mechanism been suggested, right? I, don't, I assumed it had been tested. Oh, no, because I, I always assumed it was the hot air rising. Yeah, because the, the shower, shower curtain comes in, right, and sticks so the reason it, something is moving So the reason it comes in, I think, sideways air to come in. is that as water uh, flows down from the shower, it drags air with it. So you've got a flow of air, which means you drop the pressure, which means there's actually a pressure difference. So the pressure outside the shower curtain is higher than the pressure inside, and that would push it in. But it could well be that after a while, there's a, you, you accumulate enough hot air. My experience is that they tend to come towards you, although you don't see them anymore, which is brilliant. Somebody has come up with an engineering solution to this called the shower screen, except not in the hotels we've stayed <laughs> in in New Zealand so far, which we've all commented on. Um, <laughs> but it's like showering in a room. Uh, why are you taking yourself off? So there's two engineering solutions. One is to build the shower screen, the other is just to take away the shower yeah. curtain. <laughs> well, I, I swear I read somewhere that people still argue about the mechanism of the curtain, but uh, I'm sure people will not hesitate to email in. We have a test, but we have a falsifiable hypothesis then, because if the hot air thing is right, if you have a cold shower... Cold shower, it, it shouldn't mm-hmm. stick. So we just need to get a lot of volunteers. Yeah. 17 different... Types of shower curtains. Shower curtains. Lots of different temperatures. Sealed and unsealed rooms. I'll volunteer for the warm shower. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, I can't read that one. I get passed by. Being given an equation. For the PDE, which is a uh, partial <laughs> differential equation, please stop laughing, Chesky. <laughs> Why? Something initial conditions. What is that? Can you? I'm just seeing if Helen can read what's written on there. Something, and then, and then it's got for y at zero equals three, y dash at zero equals seven. So they're the initial. Con- and there's nothing else. Is this like part one of more? Oh, there's more. Of course, they spread it across several oh, pieces right. of paper. Even though it was entirely unrequired to do that. Oh, we can do that. I got to buy it. Here we go. Let me get that. Can you read out so everyone can join in? Oh yeah, if you want to join in at home, join in. The equation is three y double diff plus y diff plus four is equal to three e to the minus two t. Find the particular solution. Uh, which is just an undergraduate. That is a very uh, well behaved PDE. Yeah, we like these. Right, you two can concentrate on that. I'm going to move over <laughs> to Lucy and Michelle. The, uh, I feel like we've been given busy work. <laughs> it's, uh, Sit quietly in the corner. You've got a nice easy one for you. What, what caused the Big Bang? <laughs> Again, we've got this. Easy. This always comes up as well, doesn't it? I mean, it, it is one of the ones that is so hard to answer because. Like we've been talking about, setting up an, a, 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 a hypothesis and an experiment to be able to test it is incredibly difficult. We don't have any measurements from before the time of the Big Bang, so how do we know what the starting conditions were? I, I don't know, but I think it's okay to say we don't know. Um, Michelle, I think this one for you, which is, uh, in my day-to-day life, what are the most likely problems that I will experience from materials becoming too cold? Oh, well... Obviously, piles. <laughs> you sit on cold chairs. Really important. Don't sit on cold things. Um, what's the question? Oh, I just, we just come uh, up from the so mass to know what, piles. In their day-to-day life, yeah. what I, I, I presume, again, coming off the back so of you to that ice, yeah. in terms of increased fragility. So if you are an ice cream fan and you make your own ice cream at home, it's really important that you choose the correct Tupperware box. 
because the same thing that happened to the challenger can happen to the wrong type of plastic box right. which is why your ice cream tubs are in a different type of plastic box than your lunch box is in um, because actually it goes brittle at a lower temperature and so if you were to make your own ice cream, put it in the wrong type of box and then pull it out and accidentally yeah, drop it, normal Tupperware boxes would shatter and you'd lose all your ice cream. So you really should use a normal ice cream. You too. <laughs> We've got answering things here. Uh, it's a bubble question, so I better save that for... Ah, uh, here we go, another nice, easy one for oh, you, no, Lucy. How and why do electrons teleport? Why do electrons teleport? Well, <laughs> teleport perhaps isn't the kind of phrase that I would use in science. Um, is it tunnelling? Do you think it's tunnelling that's being... Don't look at me, it? I'm the non-scientist uh, in the room. I am the most non-scientist of all. Uh, I'll just see if you... Because we'll ask uh, Helen about this uh, when she's finished doing her equations, but I'll just see what you reckon uh, generally. Do penguins get the bends? They must not get the So my, my uh, non-scientific view on this, since I don't work on uh, anything living uh, or bubbles or um, or nitrogen even, that surely they must have evolved to be able to cope with the conditions penguins. of going down slowly and coming up right, more, so more quickly. So you've got with right? that, Michelle, what do you reckon about penguins getting the bends? I reckon they don't get the bends. I'm going to go the opposite because, well, I've never seen... Oh, yeah, no, no, I think they don't get the bends. Okay, yes, no, we're both for no. Um, I, well, I, know, I know why whales don't get the bends. I don't know whether the same mechanism applies in penguins. It might not. What whales do, which is really interesting, because they dive much deeper than penguins. Um, the problem with the bends is that... As you dive down, the pressure in your lungs is equal to the pressure of the water around you. So that means your lungs get more and more and more pressurised. And the, if the partial gas pressure of something like uh, oxygen and nitrogen goes up, so nitrogen dissolves into your blood, the bigger problem is that oxygen becomes poisonous at more than the partial pressure of about 1.6. So it's actually not the bends that will do you in, it's the oxygen poisoning. So what whales do is they they actually store their oxygen in myoglobin in their muscles, um, and then they then shut off their lungs. So they're not breathing from their lungs, so they don't risk the, the bends. They ha already have the, um, the oxidizer, the oxygen, in the, stored in their muscles as a different chemical. So that's why whales don't get the bends, and it may be that penguins do something similar. It's a good question. I so, don't know do you answer. have to go down? Is it a deep? It's a depth thing, and it's a speed that you come up. Yeah. So there's, there's two. So there's two things here. So the the, the oxygen poisoning is just how, whether the partial pressure of oxygen exceeds about one point six. Um, which doesn't isn't a speed thing. Uh, the nitrogen is when it's dissolved out into your blood and then you come back up very quickly and like opening the top of a bottle of fizzy lemonade, the bubbles come out of solution and they do damage. So that's a speed thing. So beached whales, for example, it's been suggested that one of the reasons they might we might be getting more beachings is that uh, someone's made a loud, less of a loud noise somewhere and the whales have got scared and come up to the surface and you actually see the cavitation damage Interesting. inside that, them. That was on the TV the other day. They were talking about sonic probing for oil um, under ocean floors and it was a Greenpeace advert actually and they were talking about the problems it causes with whales. But it's a long way from this. penguins. Sorry, I just realised that what I'm doing over here is destroying everything because... Matt's taken over the, the uh, second order differential equation. Hang on, yeah, that'll be the reveal for the end of the show. We, we need to keep people listening to this podcast, I won't. Yeah, to stop listening now. Uh, two more bubble questions, so we can't oh, keep right. it going. But I'm going to throw them to you two, first of all. Uh, first question is, why do Guinness bubbles go down rather than up? And the other one is, if gas is lighter than liquid, how does Coke keep all those tiny little bubbles inside it? Magic question yeah, mark. Magic. So, first of all, Magic or, or pressure. Yeah, so for the second one, this is pressure that you... you to keep the bubbles in and temperature so that's why you have to put your drinks in the fridge because of colder temperatures 
the, the bubbles, yeah. the, the gas stays dissolved in the liquid, and then when you bring oh, yeah. them out of the fridge and it heats up, yeah. the okay. gas is so out. complex conjugates. Yeah. And more importantly, whether you buy your um, bottle in a glass or a plastic bottle is really important because if you buy some soda, you're um, in a plastic bottle that'll only have a lifespan of a year because it's a permeable membrane, and so the gas actually comes out of that. If you buy it in a glass bottle, then it can last for years and years and years because the carbon dioxide can't go through the membrane. So if you want it to last forever, buy a glass bottle. If you're going to drink it quickly, plastic is fine. So again, for the kind of post-apocalypse now, we're all living in New Zealand in yes. caves. Uh, glass bottles. Northern Hemisphere has been destroyed. Glass So, and now our <coughs> equation reveal. <laughs> we've, got to, we've got to the fact that the power, the answer has e to the power of... Uh, 1 6 plus i times the square root of 42 over 6 in it. But because apparently neither of us are very good doing maths, 47, I can't read maths handwriting. <laughs> uh, because I, we're not very good at doing maths while people are talking, we've not got to the solution yet. But they did pick a very complicated set yeah, of... Uh, yeah, they would they, they picked sneaky coefficients this is where you have to go the long way around. real long burn of a heckle, this one. <laughs> okay, well, we will find out the... Uh, when we do the uh, next New Zealand podcast, which we will do all the questions that we received tonight in Wellington that we did not have time for, uh, then we will continue with this very exciting equation. So we have to do our homework. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not being let off. I mean, I'm acting annoyed, but this is my favourite question so far. <laughs> yeah, no, you, you look giddy and a little bit coquettish as well. Uh, thank you very much, Helen, Michelle, Lucy and Matt. And uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for everyone who gave those questions when we were in Auckland. We are now about to go on stage in Wellington. Bye-bye. Thanks very much for listening and make sure you subscribe on iTunes or RSS or SoundCloud or wherever because we'll have lots more coming up on this, the Science Shambles podcast over the coming months. And be sure to check out all our other programs on the Cosmic Shambles network at cosmicshambles.com. There's lots of podcasts there like Book Shambles and Music Shambles, uh, the Professor Brian Cox Q&A podcast, Speakeasy, plus web series, documentaries, blogs, uh, live events and a whole lot more. And if uh, you do like what you find there, please, uh, if you can, consider making a donation to the network from the PayPal button on the front page, or you can support the Book Shambles Patreon, uh, which all goes towards helping us keep making everything that you'll find on the website for everyone to enjoy for free. Thanks very much, and goodbye.